Well, greetings and salutations. It's Bob McCowan. It's uh, John Shannon. Bob McCowan podcast is on the air. Can you be on the air if you're not on the air? You've asked this question all the time. The answer no, is don't. yes. Just yeah, this is the second time we had a long. We're discussion not really on the air. We're on satellite we and we're on the internet, and you don't need a transponder or a transmitter. So I don't know whether we're on the air or not. A, you do need a transponder. Well, okay, you need a transponder, but you don't really need a transmitter. Okay. Bob, you just say what you want to say. Here we are, folks. Well, today, here we are. Tomorrow, maybe just here I am. Really? The kind of attitude that you're showing today, <laughs> which is all bad. Um, I, th- I fear. It's Tuesday. I fear I fear, well, it has nothing to do with Tuesday. I fear perhaps that our, uh, our guest today may have something to do with it because he, no, no. he has a reputation of having a, a negative attitude towards a lot of things. So, so that means between you and our guest, I am the king of positivity. Well, you're the king of BS, but I don't know about, I don't know about positivity. Oh, you, positivity. You, I'm always positive. Yeah, well, not realistically. You are, you are part of the PR fraternity. I'm a cup half full guy. You, you on the other hand, is it's it, it fill it up? It's empty again. Wait a second. I'll give you positivity. <laughs> oh, that's that is not positivity, sir. That is not positivity. That no, is not, that not last blinders, year. Wasn't a hundred percent blinders on, and there's nothing else going on. I just for those of you who are listening, I just held up my Ohio State <laughs> sign, <laughs> but it did make you smile, so that's good. Steve Simmons of the Toronto Sun will join us when we continue after these messages. Well, usually when we do this program, we have a specific topic in mind, guests that come on and talk about a particular thing. Uh, But our guest today doesn't need to have a topic. He can talk about anything, and um, we expect he will. Steve Simmons of the Toronto Sun uh, is joining us. Stevie, you're back home? Back home and... Not leaving the house much these days because everybody I know is getting COVID. Again, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's crazier now, I think, than it's ever been. Yeah, I saw the province of Ontario is now suggesting we wear masks once again when we go out. And I, um, I was at the grocery store this morning, and I want you to know I put my mask on. I'm so. proud of you. Thank you very much. I'm proud of you. That's it's good. not that I'm worried about you or anybody else. It's I'm worried about them giving it to me. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, we, it's been, a, I was, well, I was going to say a while, but I, I don't think it, we've ever had a situation where we've had the three major sports teams in this city um, that are this good and have this much potential. The Blue Jays off to a great start. The Leafs, we, you know, Leaf fans are always worried, um, but they look as good as they've ever looked. And the Raptors went on a great run at the end of the year to elevate themselves to fifth in the East and play a Philadelphia team they might actually be able to beat. Uh, Last time I can recall, Stevie, uh, anything close to this was early 90s when the Leafs and the Blue Jays were both great, um, but the Raptors didn't even exist then. What about you? Yeah, it's the same thing. I remember the beginning of that season. I think the Leafs won 10 in a row, Mm -hmm. and the Blue Jays won the World Series. Yeah. You know, the Leafs were almost an afterthought at that time because everybody was focused on the baseball. Uh, but we've never, that I can recall, we've never had a situation, not only are all three teams pretty good, but all three teams are really likable. And these are teams that you want to cheer for. These are teams where you're seeing things maybe you've never seen before. And, and I think that's kind of fun uh, in, in, a, in a way that, that we really haven't had in, in a city where, frankly, I mean, I remember doing a column maybe 10 years ago about, you know, sort of Loserville, Canada. I mean, we had terrible teams and all of them were terrible. And now it's the complete opposite. But hold on, you're likable. Where did, where did that come from? Okay, I'm going to use the Raptors as likable. They don't have a superstar superstar. They don't have, you look at their roster and you say, yeah, it's okay. It's nice but then they play and they give you everything they have and they play beyond their capabilities. And so to me, this is one of the most enjoyable Raptors seasons that I can remember. So this is a likable team to me. 
until April, I'm not going to call the Leafs likable or not likable, or May, I guess it is this year, playoffs starting when they do. But in many ways, this is the best Maple Leafs team that we have seen since the league went from six teams to 12. Um, this is the deepest team. This is the strongest team. It has the biggest stars it's ever had. It's going to have the most points in a season they've ever had. They're going to have the most wins they've ever had. And everybody's going to come down to, can they win the first round of the playoffs? But right now, boys, enjoy this. Enjoy watching a superstar, you know, flex his muscles and do what Austin Matthews is doing and do what Mitch Marner's doing. Um, this, and then you flip it over to the baseball and you've got Vladdy Guerrero and Bo Bichette and, and George Springer. And, and you know, again, this, these are teams that you want to cheer for. Hmm. Well, the Blue Jay team is uh, there. We got a chance to see last year in, uh, when we saw shots in the dugout. And I mean, that was about every 30 seconds or so. This, the fun that these guys seem to be having, and I've never seen a baseball team or quite frankly, any other professional team act the way that this team has. And they're doing it again this year. So I think there's, there's a sincerity in there. I, you know, I think guys like Chapman come into this organization and go, wow, this is, this is fundamentally different from anything I've ever seen before. Well, I think I saw it a little bit with the Red Sox last year, where especially in the playoffs when they started winning and everybody in the dugout was going crazy and all that kind of stuff. But the Jays do it every day. And as you know, Bob, you know, that 162 season, game season can really grind on you as it goes on. And it's just beginning right now. But what I really liked about the Blue Jays last year was even at 140 or 145 or 150, they were still playing around. And does the smile ever leave Vladdy Guerrero's face? Like, is he just the happiest guy on earth all the time? Um, it, it, it's just something nice to see. These are kids and they're playing a kid's game and they're kind of acting like kids. And it's fun to watch them act like kids. And then when, the, as you say, when Chapman comes in or when Springer comes in, when these guys have been around a little bit, uh, Marcus Semyon, when they come in, um, they become part of the, of the culture uh, and this new culture. And it's ironic to me that the two least fun people, maybe on the planet, are Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins, who are the <laughs> president of the team and the general manager of the team. And they have this team that's just so much fun to watch. I don't know how you can say that. They've been, they're nice to you. They're nice to us. No, they're <laughs> well, they're nice to us. How about that? They're nice to us then. How's okay. that? Hey, here's what I'll, I'll challenge you with. <laughs> the next time you get anything interesting out of either of them, please call me. Yeah. I'll, I'll write about it. Well, but that's that's a commonality in our business. I sure. mean, most most anytime you get anybody who says something um, intriguing, interesting, controversial, newsworthy, you know, it, it's they it's an event. The, they rue the day for about six months. <laughs> you know, but you know what? Go back to the best Jays teams we ever saw. The, the team that won the two World Series, and maybe could have won more than that. Um, Pat Gillick is one of the great people you're ever going to meet in sports. I know where you're going, and I agree. Paul Beeston is, 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 is one of the great people you're ever going to be in sports. Neither of them ever said a damn thing that was quotable. They were the most protected guys, but they were pleasant as hell to be around and to talk to and to have conversations with. And, and you know, I enjoyed their company so much. In, in today's sporting world, those kind of guys don't exist very much. I mean, we saw it with Alex Anthopoulos here in Toronto. He's one of those kind of guys. Um, but there aren't many of them. And certainly the guys here now are, they're protective all the time. They're on alert all the time. They, if you want to ask, I'll use the Pete, the Pete Walker situation as an example. Pete Walker, the pitching coach for the Blue Jays, you know, gets caught drunk driving in Florida. And the Blue Jays issue a, you know, sort of a, milk toast kind of we're investigating this statement you know kind of thing you know basically saying they're not going to do anything about it at all and and you try and talk to them about it and you get told by their PR people that you know they've issued their statement and that's what they're going to say and and so for me you know if that had been I don't know 25 years ago and that was Pat Gillick 
maybe he would have issued his statement and maybe I would have gone on the phone and talked to him for 20 minutes and understood better what he's doing and why and would give me a better opportunity to write about it with a little more clarity. But isn't that just a, a symptom of the, uh, the, the, I'm not sure there's a word, but the corporatization of, of professional sports? I mean, everything becomes so over-examined and, there's, and, and, and now there's corporate governance that's involved that, that, that has, that's part of the business, Steve, that you and I and, and Bob, we didn't get into that when we got into this business in the 70s. Things have changed. Well, I'll use Glenn Sather as maybe the best example I can come up with. Because when Glenn Sather was the general manager and coach at times of the Edmonton Oilers, he was a cantankerous guy, sure. but he was sort of amusing to be around. And, and you would get quotes from him that were very interesting. And, and, you know, him and I never got along very well, but we had this sort of back and forth that happened. Glenn Sather goes to New York. And now he has to get permission, not from the owner, from the PR department mm-hmm. to do an interview when he was running the Rangers. So that's where, you know, in my mind, the business has gotten stranger and worse over the years because those kind of characters, when the NHL once had a Glenn Sather and a Lou Nanny and a, and a Harry Sinden and all these guys who were characters in their positions, you know, tell me who the characters are now. You know, maybe Jimmy Rutherford. I don't know very many other than him. Well, it's also fair to say that there, we went through an era and maybe grew up in an era where the, the PR department, uh, that stood for, um, you know, helping the media, getting publicity, uh, generating positive reaction, generating faces that, you know, you could put the names to the faces. Today, it's the Department of Protection. Um, they don't work the same way. And, and I, I say this as a generalization, but I think it's, it's pretty widespread. Don't you? Oh yeah. It's very widespread. And there are guys I know, I'll I'll use the late Brian Murray as an example. Uh, When Brian Murray was general manager in Anaheim, Mm -hmm. um, I called him one day and his secretary answered. And I said, can I talk to Brian? I had a very good relationship with Brian. Uh, He said, uh, who's called? She asked who was calling. I told who was calling. She says, you're going to have to go through the PR department. I said, thank you very much. I hung up and I called the PR department. And when Brian Murray called me back, I said, what's happened to you? Yeah. you know, I used to be able to call your cell phone and you'd answer and, and everything would be fine. He says, these are the rules now. You know, we've got to go through it. And this is what the owners want. So whether that, you know, again, is in owner's culture, whether that's social media, whether that's yeah. you know, the world changing or control of the message. Um, I sure thought it was more interesting and more fun. John, you were you know, around the NHL very closely in some of those crazy days. Uh, and, uh, and, and I really enjoyed those GMs. And I look around the NHL today, and I'll be honest, I don't know very many of them the way I knew them 10 years, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I don't think there's any question that people are more guarded. I think that uh, I think the whole world in the last decade, particularly of different platforms where information gets, uh, uh, gets sent out. I think the fact now that in many ways, and, and this is another aspect of the business that we're in, and I, I'm not lamenting it, I'm just saying it's a fact, is that how, how much now uh, of the content that people uh, digest is actually created by the leagues and created by the teams as opposed to by independent contractors and independent voices like yours and Bob's. I mean, the, the, the world has changed so much that way. And I'm not saying it's changed for the better, but it's, it's certainly changed. I want to use Austin Matthews, for example, because Austin Matthews is having this season for the ages. And if you read the, the great piece that Emily Kaplan did on Austin Matthews in ESPN, the magazine, just the, I think it came out in either August or September. You know, he has this crazy front cover picture in this, you know, he looks like a surfer kind of guy. Right. dressed in, in weirdo clothing, you know, Bieber's kind of stuff. And, uh, uh, and he, he, tell, he tells her in the piece, he really wants to be sort of the face of hockey and, and be this sort of guy who's a personality. And then he goes to the Toronto media availabilities on a daily basis, and he says nothing. And he says nothing interesting. And he's boring as can be and occasionally condescending. 
And I, you wonder, is, does that come from the club? Does that come from his agent? Who is that coming from? But the guy who, who now could own the game because he's that good and his talents are that extreme, um, you know, hasn't been able to be that guy he wants to be or supposedly wants to be because no one's letting him be that guy. Well, who's the most likable athlete that you deal with? Who? That's such a personal question because what's likable to me may not be likable to you. May not. Well, be fair enough, but let's not. address it. Let's, and, and, and how do you, and how do you define the likable when you can't even sit in the same locker room as the well, guy? You know what? That was, I walked into the blue Jay clubhouse on Thursday and I really wanted to scream out loud. I'm in a clubhouse. <laughs> it's the first time in over two years. Yeah. And I was talking to Kevin Gossman, the, the new Jays pitcher. I was talking how, much fun it was to have a conversation with someone in a clubhouse, no notebooks out, just talking. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that, by the way, did he agree with you? Yeah, actually he did. And he was, you know, uh, and he was, you know, and what did we talk about? You know, where does he like to eat in Toronto? And just things you'd never write in a story, just, just common conversation for a guy who's just moved here from another city, brought his little girls and brought his, uh, his wife and, and he told me about he, he taped the national anthem so that his girls could learn the words before coming up here. You know, he's got he's got two little daughters. Uh, and it, it was just a delightful to have a real conversation. I haven't had a, a leaf or a raptor conversation with anyone since they closed the dressing rooms March 2020. So you miss that, Bob. And so you don't get to say who who's the guy you like the most because right. most of it's, you know, there's, there's only one Michael Clements on the planet, so I'm going to have him as my all-time favorite person. And, uh, and then I'll, everyone else will be second, third, fourth, and fifth. But o over, over the years, if you look back at when you were doing the regular beat between any NHL team you followed and, and then here in Toronto, uh, were there guys that stood out, and, and are those guys still friends of yours? Um, I don't call them friends but they're guys I can talk to on the phone or call when, when necessary. Um, I'll go back. I started in Calgary. So Jim Poplinski and Joe Neuendijk stand out to me because they're guys I've known from the day they came into the NHL. And I was starting and they were starting and we're basically the same age. And, and so you got that kind of thing. And then you go to the Pat Burns and Pat Quinn Maple Leafs mm -hmm. and, you know, you know, um, I have a book coming out, by the way, in the fall, which is a collection of columns. And Doug Gilmore has written the forward for it, which it's funny because him and I didn't always get along, but he was good enough and he agreed to, to do this. Um, but from those teams, people like Gary Roberts and again, New and Dyke and, and, and Curtis Joseph, and, you know, those, those were terrific people to, to have to deal with on a daily basis and, and be around. And Pat Quinn, who hated, it's funniest thing, Pat Quinn hated the media. Single best interview I have ever been around in, in sports. Like he was just exceptionally good and exceptionally smart and hated every bit of it. Well, and I'll tell my own Pat Quinn story because Quinn and I did not get along and I don't remember the genesis of it and did not talk. And um, then he got, he got fired, I guess and was finished with his coaching and whatever career. And he showed up. Shannon might remember this. He did, a, he did a trade deadline for us one year. Trade deadline day. And then came in and did prime time. And I was shocked he walked into the studio and treated me like I was his long lost son yeah. or brother, more accurately, I suppose, age-wise. Uh, and I was absolutely flabbergasted because he was one of those guys that like, we did not talk. We, we were kind of at war and I, and, and it repaired itself mysteriously. Well, it's, it's well, funny you say that because um, w when Peter Zezel passed away, there were so many people at the funeral that you couldn't get everybody in the church. So whoever got in the church and got seats, got seats, the rest of us stood outside and they, they you could hear the service, but you couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. um, afterwards, I'm standing out in the parking lot with, there were so many people, like hundreds of people at this thing. And Pat walks over, shakes my hand. At that time, he'd been fired by the Leafs. Um, shakes my hand. And we never really were close in any way. Um, and he said, like, I have to apologize to you. And I said, for what? He said, I didn't always treat you guys very nicely. 
Oh, so he had an epiphany, I think. Yeah. So whatever happened to him, I mean, he went and coached Edmonton after that. Right. And I think coached in the World Juniors maybe after that. Actually, the world, he coached the World Juniors, and that convinced the Oilers that he probably had one more kick at the can. Yeah. And, uh, and when he did that, I was completely shocked because I knew that sort of daily exercise that coaches have to go through and, and get asked questions. And there were people that he just couldn't stand. <laughs> he would blow smoke in their face. He'd have a cigar and he'd blow smoke in, in Howard Berger's face or, oh. or Ken Campbell, or people like that. He loved David Schultz of the Globe and Mail. That was his guy. Um, he absolutely loved him. But he didn't really warm up to anyone. But if you ask Pat a good question, you got a great oh. answer. So, well, I, uh, it, my, my, my relationship with Pat was totally different than either of yours. Um, uh, all the way back to him uh, when he was coaching in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, we had mutual friends when he was a player. So there was a bond there. Uh, and from that point on, I became a friend and, and Pat and Sandra and I became friends all through the, her, their time here in Toronto. Uh, we were friends when I was doing games for hockey night and he was coaching in Vancouver, <laughs> he would drive me back to the hotel. <laughs> so it was one of those we, we, and we would talk, he said, you know, they had a replay on the show about so-and-so and so, how would they know to do that? I'd say, well, you know, somebody told me in the morning something was going to happen and we expected it to happen. And he, and he was always trying to, trying to figure out what, what, what we did in our jobs. The other thing was is that in, in 2001, when we launched Leafs TV, um, Pat was our savior because we, uh, we stayed on as long as we could with Pat's press conferences after every game. <laughs> and there were nights it was 45 great minutes of television and Pat was just standing there and having a great time telling old fashioned stories. Yeah. And it, and it, it saved, it saved our little network for the first year and a half. I would swear. What I think people forget, especially now, because what's the conversation about the Leafs every single day? What are they going to do in the playoffs? Yeah. How long has it been since they last run up? They won a playoff yeah. round. Pat Quinn coached. Pat Quinn coached 80 <laughs> playoff games yeah. for the Maple Leafs. Right. 80. That's, you know, and then they fired him. Yeah. Was, you know, that, was a, that was crazier than hiring John Ferguson and then allowing John Ferguson to fire him. That was, you know, two of the dumber things the Leafs have ever done. Uh, that's a long list. Um, it would be on that <laughs> list, though. Well, remember, that was the summer. That was the summer that, uh, or within a, a, a 12-month period where, um, Fergie Jr. got hired and Rob Babcock got hired. Yes. Richard, uh, so, and, and Richard Petty still talks sports. Like people listen to him. Like, you know what? <laughs> if I had hired those two guys, I would never speak again. I would, no, like, but, I would hide but, in a closet somewhere. But, but, listen, Richard, Richard was a, a great businessman. And he, he actually, he taught me a lot as well. And I'll tell you what, without, uh, without Richard Petty, I don't think there's a Maple Leaf Square or a real sport or that whole West End of the uh, arena that exists. That was where Richard's will, strength was. I will never question his business acumen yeah. and all that they did building that thing. But as a, a person in charge of teams, yeah. You know, he said he he cost that company by, by my calculation somewhere in the neighborhood of, of sixty to seventy million dollars. How do you figure uh, that playoff revenue lost? Oh, oh, well, maybe. I mean, you can hypothesize that. I mean, that's like some of those uh, new uh, analytic stats: expected goals. Yes, Steve, you I know. don't understand those either. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> I was having this conversation with somebody recently about shot attempts. And I said, isn't a shot attempt like an incomplete pass in football? Like nobody talks about, about, oh, Tom Brady had 14 incomplete passes yesterday. No, well, like, wait a sec. What's the difference between a shot attempt and a missed shot on goal? Uh, the, uh, uh, a shot attempt, a missed shot on goal can be considered a, uh, a shot attempt. Uh, a sh what the, the, what a is shot a shot attempt? A shot, a shot attempt, attempt could a be a block that doesn't get to the net. You no, shoot. a shot. No, no, a shot attempt could be a shot on goal. It could be a missed shot. It could be a block shot. It's it's the overarching. Can it be a fan shot? No, that's not. A, that's a fan. 
I thought you I, were a fan. By the way, I, I lead the Toronto media in shot attempts over the years, Bob. I, I may be tied with you. I was, well, I, I, I would say we're probably um, close to one, too. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, I predicted there would be no specifics to the conversation, and I have been proven accurate already. We'll see if we can uh, focus on something. Or maybe focus. We focus. <laughs> uh, after these messages. McCowan, Shannon, and Steve Simmons of the uh, Toronto Sun. Uh, let's talk. This baseball season is, um, you know, a weekend old uh, plus a game. Uh, and we talked about the camaraderie that the Toronto Blue Jays have and have had since this group has been together for the last few years. I'm sure there was uh, plenty of this in those COVID seasons where they played in Dunedin or in um, in Buffalo. But we didn't see as much of it for whatever reason. I guess there weren't enough cameras. Um, but since they've come to the back to the Rogers Center, boy, we get it. Um, and you said this yourself, Simmons. They are a fun team to watch. They're very likable, and they are—they're very good. Compare them to the '91 and '92 teams, though. Um, we both, we all three of us experienced that in depth. You and I were at the ballpark virtually every night during that, that period of time. Well, if you go to, to 93, when they won the world series for the last time, <coughs> John Olerud was at first versus Vladdy Guerrero. Uh, as great a player as John Olerud was, I think Vladdy Guerrero is better. Can't well, second, argue. Second base, they had Alomar. So there's no comparison and no subject to talk about there. Um, shortstop at that time was Tony Fernandez near the end of his career. And now it's Bo Bichette pretty early in his career. Bichette's better offensively, more mm -hmm. powerful. Maybe he's not as smooth a shortstop as Tony was, but at that point of, in the career, I think this is a very even match and it may even tip in favor of, of uh, Bichette. So now you go to third base and in 93, it was Ed Sprague compared to Matt Chapman. Well, Matt Chapman is a world-class fielding third baseman. I know he's going to strike out a ton. I know he's going to hit some home runs, but he's going to be so good at third base. He's already shown it, hasn't he? Uh, I was watching him throwing in warm-ups the other day. I haven't seen, to be honest, Bob, I've never seen anyone throw like this. The way the ball comes out of his hands as fast as it comes out and as accurately as it comes out. And Guerrero didn't have to move his glove. It was going bang, right to his glove, bang, yeah. right to his glove. And he had last year where he had a pile of guys playing third, and he never knew where the ball was coming from. And so this is, this is going to make the Jays defensively significantly stronger. So now you go to the outfield. They had Devon White in center field, who you know is as good a center fielder as I've ever seen. Me too. But George Springer is, is a very good offensive player and a decent defensive second center fielder. So it's like, how do you make, you know, one over the other there? Joe Carter was in right. Teoscar Hernandez is in right. Probably somewhat similar fielders. Yep. And maybe Teoscar is a better, more consistent hitter than Joe Carter. Ooh, don't tell Joe that. Throw the home run away. <laughs> now you go to left field. It was Ricky Henderson at the end of his career, um, you know, who was maybe the most amusing player I've ever been around um, on a daily basis. And, and now it's um, uh, Lord Guriel Jr. And Lord Guriel Jr. is, you know, a solid major league, decent outfielder, uh, a pretty steady offensive guy. You know, I think at this point in time, he's better than Henderson was at the end. So you can look at that. I mean, maybe the pitching was a little deeper in 93. Than oh, I think so. But, particularly the bullpen. Yeah. Um, and more so in 92 than 93 when they had Henke and Ward and Timlin and Key and Stoudemire. Like, all those guys were in the bullpen. David Wells, I think. Uh, that was an incredible bullpen, the 92 team. But the actual starting lineup, you can make the case this lineup is every bit as good. as the. Oh, team. I think it's better. That I actually think it's a little bit yeah. better. Yeah, it, it may be. Uh, and, I, and that's what's so exciting, too, because, frankly, I mean, when, when 2015 started, you didn't look at that team and say, this is going to be a great team. Uh, and they weren't. And it took half a year, and then Anthopoulos made the deals, and, <laughs> and they were better. But they didn't have what they have here now. No. Um, 
And that's what's so much fun about this is we don't know what this is going to become. You know, they won, what, 91 games last year, essentially without home games. So you should be able to do better. But, you know, four games so far, the starting pitching has been crummy. Good in one, average in one, and terrible in two. Yeah. Well, Manoa was pretty good last night. Oh, Manoa well, was great last night. No, Manoa was. That was the good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but did you know Berrios was atrocious in his first start, and Ryu got knocked around in his first start. And there's, you know, that's forty million dollars worth of pitching. Uh, uh, to be the to be the devil's advocate, w- wouldn't you suggest that coming out of a shortened spring training, that pitching was going to be an issue for lots of teams? Yeah, they're talking, and they're talking about four inning starts or five inning starts. Yeah. Guys. I mean, last night, for example, I think Manoa went six. Six, yeah. He threw eighty nine pitches, and and you knew when he came out for the sixth inning because the way they all greeted him that he was done. Yeah. Eighty I mean, nine pitches used to be, you know, a hundred was sort of. Heck, Steve, he 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 threw twenty four pitches the first two innings, and then I think threw twenty nine in the third alone. Yeah. That third inning was a little bit of when he walked three guys in a row. That was. That was a little different for a guy who was supposed to have full control. And then Bichette made an amazing play to, to end That's the inning. Right. Um, but I, I've liked Alec Manoa from the minute he got here. There's just something about him. He just seems to, you know, you know, you saw, I think you saw it with Juan Guzman. When Juan Guzman came to the Blue Jays, he just knew how to win. And I think it's kind of the same with Alec Manoa. He's just, he's just kind of chill. He just gets out there and he does his job. And he wasn't like... Nate Pearson was the big guy, right? He was he was going to be the next. Oh, yeah. We still don't know where he is, whether he, in fact, even has mononucleosis or what it is. I we can't be sure of that. Um, uh, but Nate Pearson was going to be got no one. Hold on, you can't you can't you can't doubt that he has mono. I mean, they've announced he has. Well, come on. They could have wanted to keep him in Florida for another month of throwing something, and they had to come up with a a story. It's not the first time a team has done that. That is cynical Steve at his best right there. That could be like saying your goalie has a rib issue and he'll be out a month when maybe it's your goalie can't get his head together and we got to figure out how to get him back in the, in the, in the cage. Wait a second. What are you suggesting now? (laughs) I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just saying that. that Cynical Steve is at it again. Who knew (laughs) that Jack Campbell was actually hurt? Like I didn't see any sign of it prior to him disappearing for, for five weeks. Um, and so did uh, most of the people covering the Leafs. They, they, I mean, maybe he was. Maybe and maybe Nate Pearson is sitting in Florida right now and sleeping all day. Um, <laughs> with Nate Pearson now, what's this, about eight different things he's had in three seasons? Well, yeah, um, and not many of them connected. Um, he's been, I think every part of his body has a, had a boo-boo that has uh, sidetracked him. I think they should look to trade him before his name just becomes, you know, before he becomes a complete bust. Well, the danger in that, of course, as you would uh, understand, I would think, is, you know, twofold. Number one, you don't you don't deal a guy that you have had such high expectations of because you're afraid that you'll deal into somebody and he'll be he'll become what you thought he was going to become. And secondly, he has no market value right now; he has negligible market value. Well, you, You'd be getting you, rid of him, not trading yeah. with, for somebody. About a guy like that, there's always a team. There's always one team that thinks if we get this guy, we're going to fix him. And that's, as, that story is as old as sport itself. You know, you see it every year in the NFL with first-round picks that don't turn out, and then two years later they get another shot, and then they get another shot, and then their careers are over. Um, there may be somebody in baseball who, who still thinks that Nate Pearson is something. And, and remember the Tulowitzki trade that Anthopoulos made with Colorado? Yeah, sure. He was heartbroken to be trading a kid named Hoffman. Um, and he was like, I can't believe we had to give up Hoffman to make this deal. And I know it's going to come back and bite us and blah, 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 blah. Have you seen Hoffman? No. Does he, does he exist? I don't even know where he is. He was in Colorado. I think he's now in Cincinnati, but he's not a pitcher of any significance in the big leagues. And this is how, what, five years later, six years later? Yeah. Uh, from, uh, you know, random points of view, um, I and John will attest to this. Um, I have been very high on uh, Espinal. And I thought he got a, a, a short shift in the evaluation of the team last year. 
not that they, he's not really a third baseman. Um, and they go and get Chapman and you know, nobody's going to argue the merit of that, but putting Espinal at second base, I think is a much more natural position for him. And I'll tell you what, I think Biggio is going to have a real tough time getting playing time and at bats. I think Espinal is really a very, very good defensive and in the punch and Judy category, which we used to think second baseman for the most part were all, you know, singles hitters. Sure. That's what Espinal essentially is. He's not a power guy. He might hit five home runs this year. Might. Oh. But overall, he's pretty good. I grew up, in, in there, as we all did, when teams could have shortstops who hit 215 and with no power at all. The Baltimore Orioles had Mark Belanger or... or Louis Aparicio. Louis Aparicio, Ray Euler. There's a lot of guys that were were very good defensive shortstops. And then all of a sudden, the shortstops became power hitters. So if, if you have a power hitter at third and a power hitter at first and a power hitter at shortstop, you can get away with having Espinal at second because he's not a bad hitter. He's just not a powerful guy. And I, I think, think he's a pretty I, good hitter. I, don't, yeah, I think he's better than not bad. Well, I think what happened with, with the Jays as they were developing their players is they lumped Guerrero, um, Bichette, and Biggio together, yeah. three sons of major league players of consequence, <laughs> and they won that championship in double-A together, and they played for John Schneider, and they all came up together that they were sort of going to be together. Well, right. it's clear that two of them are major league stars, and one of them is a utility a guy. Bench. He's a utility guy. Yeah. And, and may, you know what? To me, if you have a guy better than him, go get the guy better than him. But to me, he's your 23rd, 24th, 25th guy on a, well, it's now a 27 or 28 man roster, depending on what we Well, for is. a while, yeah. Um, you know, I, I agree with you, Bob. I think, I don't know where you play him. He's not a great second baseman, he's not a great fielder. He's not, you know, he's got nice instincts. He's not much of a hitter. Um, so to me, again, I'll, I'll go happily to Espinal. The only thing you don't know, and this is what happens sometimes, is a guy who can play and, and get 300 at-bats and be competent getting 300 at-bats sometimes can't make this, do the same thing when he's getting 500. That's fair, but we don't know that yet. No, we don't. No, we don't. We, and that's and, what we. And if it turns out to be three hundred for Espinal and two hundred for Biggio, then then they can live with that too. If, you know, as long well, as well, Biggio's redeeming quality. I hope you would agree, is that he has versatility. He can play third. He can play second. He can play the outfield, and he's a left-handed bat. Right. Those. If he doesn't have those two skill sets, his <laughs> versatility and the fact that he just hits left-handed, I don't think he's on this team. Yeah, versatility is an interesting thing. Are you versatile because you can't play any position? Is that why you become versatile? Or are you versatile because athletically you're able to play all these positions? Well, I think the latter is the case with him because he's competent yeah. um, everywhere. And I think also the name the name has value. I think it helps him. You know, his, hurt father, him. his father's a Hall of Famer. Uh, uh, but at a, at a certain point, it will stop, though. Oh, yeah. At a, at a certain point, it will also, stop. I think there's also this Bichette, Biggio, Guerrero trio that all, you know, sort of grew up together in the Jays system and came up together um, is maybe they don't want to upset the apple cart with, with Vladdy and with, with Bo Bichette and, you know, take care of their guy as much as they can until, you know, until it's obvious. I mean, so far this season, um, Espinel's had two very large hits. Um, in, in really key situations. And, and so in four games, he's already done things that are in, in some ways game-changing. When you have a guy doing that and then you have a guy not really contributing much of anything, you're going to have to go to the guy that's doing that more and more often. We've only got a few minutes left. Um, we haven't talked much about the Raptors as they get set for the, uh, the postseason. Um, first of all, are you looking forward to this play-in kind of stuff? I don't really like it, but I know why they do it is because it gives them, you know, some form of extra television for <laughs> the teams that like normally in the NBA, it's not like hockey. Eight doesn't beat one in a playoff series and seven doesn't beat two. 
Um, there's no goaltending in, in basketball other than blocking a shot. Um, and, and so those first round series can be pretty junky. Uh, and, you know, Phoenix is going to play whoever Phoenix is playing, and it's going to be a blowout. And so to have seven and eight and nine and ten get into this sort of, you know, I'll play you, then I'll play the winner. It's kind of a fun thing for a short time. And it's kind of like what they've done with the NCAA basketball tournament. Exactly. Yeah. For the extra teams that, that don't get named. And do, do I, I would probably like it a lot more if it was my team involved and they were fighting for one of those spots. But now it seems that all it does is delay the first yeah. week of the playoffs a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying I want it or don't want it. It's there and it's not going away from everything I'm led to believe. I, well, I like it, it. I don't know about you guys, but I like it better than uh, what baseball used to do. Um, we're going to see how the baseball postseason works out with the play-in kind of thing with wild cards. But um, at least you've got a formula where there will be, well, three games, I guess, yeah. played. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, yeah. Well, yeah, what, and, what's interesting is that the East is actually pretty decent teams, but the West, it's, it's pretty junky teams. Uh, and so there's a little bit of difference there where normally it would have been the West that would have had the deeper, you know, 9, 10, 8, 9, 10 kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, the East, would you'd get in with a less than 500 record. Now it's the opposite right now. Aren't and, the Clippers, aren't the Clippers one of the playing teams? Yeah. Yep. It's interesting because Doug Smith was on with us yesterday and he likes the Clippers. You, you think they're junkie teams, and I tend to agree with you, but he, he thinks the Clippers are actually good. Well, it, it, you know, I love Smitty. He's my guy. And <laughs> if he's got inside information that Kawhi is coming back, then no. God bless him and the Clippers. I don't think so. Um, I don't but, think so. Um, to me, I, I, for me, well, that I, tell I, you what, Paul George, by the way, has just been terrific since he's come back. But, you know, that, that team is missing its best player. And we all know that the best player in the NBA, you know, means so much, maybe more than any other sport. Um, so I don't see, you know, how they maybe they can give somebody trouble for the first round. See, the, the fascination for me about this play in tournament is that I, I, I and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's actually a team that can lose one of these play in games and still continue to play. Yes. See, and that that bothers me. If you're the, well, if you're the seventh well, or eighth, you got to give, you have to give some bonus to the teams that finished seventh. Team that finished seventh. Uh, I, so just seven that, that tells eight. me to go. That tells me to go back to one to eight and let them play. Well, seven plays eight, you know, and nine plays ten, and then like it's it's different. Like you you would thought if we, if we were probably designing this, we may have had seven play ten and eight play nine, and and we'll do it a different way. But I kind of like the fact that that they give that seventh place team a chance. If they lose that first game, they can come, they can come back in you know, the back door kind of thing. The repechage. It's a repechage. That's like rowing. <laughs> well, uh, that intrigues me too. I, I'm, I'm with Simmons on that one. Um, what have you seen from the Raptors? Can they beat Philadelphia? Will they beat Philadelphia? Uh, can they? I never, ever, ever um, shortchange a Nick Nurse team. I think Nick Nurse is as good a coach as there is in the NBA. And I think, you know, the, you give, uh, you give Nick nurse a week to get ready for a playoff series. Then, you know, I think that gives the Raptors the advantage they have. If they have that, um, the difference is, you know, who's the best player in the series and who's been one of the two or three best players in the NBA all season long, Joel Embiid. And, um, and the Raptors don't have a natural center so to so to speak, to put up against Joel Embiid, I love that sort of front court six foot seven, six foot eight guys that crash the glass and, and make it really hard for the other team to play. I like that. Uh, I love the depth of potential twenty point guys. You know, if everybody's healthy, if OG Ananobi's playing, you know, if Gary Trent Jr. is playing, if Van Vliet is healthy, you know, they got a lot of guys can score twenty on any given night. And so I think this is going to be a long. This is not going to be a short series. And, you know, if they can win, it will be because, you know, they have more guys that can contribute offensively as opposed to one guy who's, you know, the major contributor and then figure out what's James Harden and what's everybody else in this. And I'll always favor Nick Nurse 
pretty much in any playoff series he's in. And this is, a, as I wrote the, yesterday, this is a medical series because you got a doc against the nurse. <laughs> Very that's good. why you get the big dollar stuff. yes it's amazing that's, that works. that's why nice. I, and, I, and what does the loser of the series get to coach the Lakers because uh, those are I've heard both names yeah. I've heard both nurse's name and Doc Rivers name for the Laker job already I would be shocked I mean if, if Nick Nurse had an interest in coaching the Lakers I mean he loves being here he loves coaching the Canadian national team he loves his relationship that you know they treat him well and yeah. they pay him well, mm-hmm. and they let him coach. They don't sit there and look over your shoulder. Well, if you go to Los Angeles, they fired Vogel, and they told everybody they'd fired Vogel before they told Vogel. Like, if, if I'm Nick Nurse or Doc Rivers or anybody else that wants the Lakers job, first thing I'm going to say is, I don't want to work for you guys. You guys are telling people, you know, I'm fired before you tell me I'm fired. I want to know how Rob Palinka still has a job. Well, I think he's friends with Jeannie Buss, I think is how that works. Um, but, well, you know, I mean, that whole organization is such a mess and that team is such a mess and they have no prospect of getting better realistically in the next four or five years. They just, I don't know how they do it. Well, if you watch ESPN on a daily basis, um, and I was in, in Florida for 10 weeks, so I watched way more ESPN than I should have. Um, all they talk about is the Lakers. It's it's every single day. Are the Lakers going to make the playoffs? Will the Lakers make the playoffs? Are they going to fire the coach? Are they going to, the other 29 or what, how many teams are in the NBA uh, never get talked about very much. You know, once in a while, Brooklyn gets a few words and once in a while, you know, maybe Phoenix gets a few words, Um, but it's Lakers every single day. Like the entire world revolves around this franchise. (laughs) Well, Part of that, having lived out there in that neighborhood, at least, um, it's a pretty understandable and natural reaction. I'll tell you what, now you know why, and now what, uh, if you feel that for the Lakers, now you know what most hockey fans feel like <laughs> in, in, in this country when everybody's talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Stevie, we're uh, going to let you go. We uh, enjoyed it immensely, and uh, maybe we'll have a topic for you next time you come on. Topics, topics are overrated, Bob. Rambling on. <laughs> Thanks, pal. We'll talk again soon. Steve Simmons of the Toronto Sun. We'll come back and wrap this one up after these messages. Well, Stevie's internet froze there at the end. I don't know if you're just listening. You didn't hear that. But um, we made it sound like everything was normal, didn't we? Why, now, why would you give away the secrets? You know, the smoke and mirrors have of our no business. secrets. There are no secrets here. There, there are that is secrets. the success of this program has always been. There are no Transparent, Transparency? Complete transparency. 100% transparency. <laughs> we try and get it out of our guests, and we offer it on behalf of our audience. Oh, please. What is that? <laughs> the mission statement of the Bob McCowan podcast. Well, that's it. It's a mission statement. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, Manolo was so great. what did you think? I was going to say, what did you think of him last night? Manolo was great last night. Yeah. You know, um, he's just a pitcher. He's just a bulldog. No. Um, I was trying to think who he reminds me of, and he reminds me a bit of Jack Morris. Um, he's bigger than Morris, though, don't you? Think? Oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Physically, yeah. I, I, physically. It's just he gets the ball, and he throws it. And I was, I was thinking not, of a right-handed CC Sabathia. I mean, just I don't see that, but his, but his pure, like well, you're talking his, physical the size makeup. of his, yeah, well, that's part yeah, of well, it. I'm not, no, I'm not, I'm just talking about attitude and the way he pitches and, and the level of confidence that you have. The difference is I, you know, I really focused on Morris later in his career when he was giving up four or five runs a game, but just kept going. Right. And you know, they, you wouldn't take the baseball away from Jack Morris. He'd kill you before you <laughs> got back to, say, to the dugout. I'm going to say, you can see the manager and the pitching coach have it and say, okay, you go out talking. I'm, no, I'm not going out to talk. I'm not going out there. Yeah. No, he'd kill you. If he, did, if he, if he thought he could still throw, he'd still throw. And he'd say, yeah. get back in that little cubby hole there and leave me alone. Now, Manoa hasn't evolved that way, but feels to me like there is no pitch count 
that would exceed Manoa's capability. He'd throw it till his arm fell off. And I pray he gets the opportunity to do that, not to throw till his arm falls off, but, you know, doesn't fall victim to this four or five inning, you know, 80, 90 pitch structure that exists today in the game. And I know he came out before 90 pitches last night, and I know it was his first outing, and I know it was a short spring. But I'll tell you what, I'll bet you he could have thrown a complete game last night. Well, I was going to say maybe uh, maybe he's the answer to a prop bet. Who's the first Blue Jay pitcher to have a, to pitch a complete game this year, or will there be one? I don't think there'll be one. And you don't I, think there's a chance? I don't think there's going to be a complete game this year. No, I don't. And wow. I think it comes from the front office and all the you know cyber metrics and super analytics. Yeah, nonsense. I don't think it's Charlie's. Idea. I think Charlie has been around the game long enough to know guys can throw f- complete games and can throw sure. complete games in under 120 pitches and then pitch again four days later. And I think Manoa is the perfect candidate for that. I think Barrios has a rubber arm, and I know Manoa does. Hopefully, Barrios has a better it. arm. Manoa has a better arm? No, I said hopefully Barrios has a better arm than opening night. Well, yes, of course. He had a bad, you know, he, was, he was terrible. But, um, He's got that slider or whatever it is that um, that gets guys. Yeah. Uh, how much time we got here? Not much, huh? No, about thirty seconds. Um, Owen Powers' um, debut with uh, Buffalo. Uh, sign of uh, things uh, to come. Uh, yeah, I mean, here, listen, this guy's going to be a star in the NHL. He's he's had an amazing year. When you think about World Juniors, World Championships, Olympics. And now gets to play uh, his first game in the National Hockey League in his hometown against the Maple Leafs for the Buffalo Sabres. It's a it's a pretty good story for a team that's not going to make the playoffs in Buffalo. No, it would be interesting to see how long Owen Powers yeah. stays there. The other star they had didn't stay that long. Well, uh, five his, years uh, five in years. Vegas. Well, that's not that long. Okay. For a number right. one. Hey, by player. the way, Chris Pronger tomorrow. Yeah, Chris we'll look forward Pronger. to that. It's going to be a fascinating discussion. All right. Well, he's a glib guy. He's a glib guy. We'll look forward to it. We hope uh, the audience will too. Thanks for watching or listening. See you tomorrow. Goodbye, everybody.